Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Mark Thompson. Get woke. God bless you. Get woke. Folks, MIP is now COVID free, meaning free to all subscribers as we navigate this pandemic. We're thinking about everyone and we've got to get through this together. So for a limited time, no fee to subscribe to make it plain on your favorite podcast app. Ladies and gentlemen, a very special guest today. She's a professor of sociology and education at the American University in Washington, D.C., where I used to live. She directs, listen to this, the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, which makes a very cool acronym, Carol, as a matter of fact. And that's in the Center for University Excellence at AU. She's written several books. I'm gonna talk about her latest, but other books she's written include The Extreme Gone Mainstream, commercialization and far-right youth culture in Germany and blood and culture, youth right-wing extremism and belonging in contemporary Germany. So she knows of which she writes and speaks. Her latest, Hate 
in the homeland, the new global far right. Professor Cynthia Miller Idris joins us now. Dr. Miller Idris, welcome to Make It Plain. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, to have you here with us. I, I want to get right into one of your main points. I know we're going to cover some broad areas, but what I think I found most intriguing and others do as well is that COVID has created a, an opportunity for uh, even more recruitment for the far right wing. Is that accurate? Yes, it has. I mean, I, I think one of the, the saddest things at this moment is that there's so many crises happening at once that we're literally putting out fires, right? I mean, the country has been burning. We have, you know, widespread racial injustice protests. We have election crisis. We have all kinds of, and then a pandemic. So it can be really hard to focus on something like radicalization, which is like a slow, long process that takes more than a year, usually a couple of years from the time that people are exposed to the time that real violence or terrorism occurs. But we are have right now perfect conditions, like I've never seen anything like it for the kinds of conditions that have come together, both the increased propaganda and misinformation, disinformation, recruitment happening, uh, racist and anti-Semitic ideas and you know conspiracy theories circulating. And then on the what we call the demand side, you know, anxiety, isolation, extreme amounts of time spent online and fewer contact with less contact with other adults you know coaches um, teachers people outside the home that might recognize warning signs so all of those things together create what i call kind of a perfect storm right now that you know with some urgency i think we need to pay attention to if we don't want to see violence a year and a half two years from now and i know that's a hard ask at a moment when there's a lot going on it's hard to look ahead but I think those conditions are very risky. That far away, a year and a half, two years now, a lot of us are feeling like I was just on the phone with someone earlier today that there's this feeling that some folk want a civil war yes. right now. And especially with this upcoming election, like how are we even going to keep the lid on that? Yeah, I should say there's also mobilization happening to so that's the kind of the kind of mobilization i was just talking about radicalization is where people enter the kind of like um the to charleston right the planned violent attacks that that targeted people in in el paso in charleston in christchurch in pittsburgh right in places like that but we also you're absolutely right have this uh mobilization going on right now that is to the militia side of the domestic terrorism. And that is has its own white supremacist components to it, but is also very anti-government extremist. And, you know, we're having record-breaking sales all summer of ammunition and, and of weapons and firearms. And so you also see that happening um, and calls to, you know, show up in DC, show up at the White House to contest the election. Um, and so, yes, I think everybody I know in this field is concerned about violence around the election, between the election and the inauguration, I would say, even that whole period. That's more of what I would call the spontaneous side, you know, where people are showing up heavily armed at protests 
without necessarily planning violence, but where there's, it's like a tinderbox. There's a lot of risk of spontaneous violence, like we've seen in places like Kenosha and Portland, um, where people are likely to, to get hurt. And I think um, that, is a, that is also a big risk right now. Uh, but, but I don't want to minimize yeah. what you said. I, if, yeah. now, that I, now I'm hearing it again. Sounds like you're saying that the, the long-term types of situations that people get pulled into and then organized around, that's something that can manifest over a year, year and a half, two years. But, that's right. but, then, there, but then there are these spontaneous things right. uh, that are happening that we're seeing reactions to right now. Yeah, it's like spontaneous fires, right? And and we are really focused on that right now and I'm putting that out and I understand we should be because the risk of violence in spontaneous ways matters a lot too, especially when we have, you know, militia groups mobilizing online, calling for violence, calling for civil war, calling for revolution, all of those kinds of things. But what I mostly am looking at in this book and my concern right now about youth in particular is the way they're exposed to kind of a argument that says the solution is a white ethno state, right? And we're going to work toward that, right? Or we're going to uh, deport, right? We want to deport or voluntarily what they call remigrate, right? They try to use softer language that's like a remigration of ethnic minorities or of of, uh, of Im- people of immigrant background, migrant background to have to leave the country or remigrate to other ports, parts of it away from the ethno state. And so those kinds of radicalizing ideas, extremist propaganda, you know, um, and rhetoric that's happening online, it's, it's, it happens slowly. It's a slow process. People get induced to, introduced to a meme, to racist ideas, then they gradually over time cross a point of, I don't want to say no return, but where it's much harder to bring somebody back who is radicalized than it is to build off France in the beginning. And so, that's sort of you know what I'm urging people to pay attention to right now is in the midst of crisis, we still have to look at some of these long-term processes and think about the risks that are happening with you know 16-year-olds being online all the time with recruiters out there trying to persuade them. Um, and that's really where a lot of this uh, is taking place, isn't it? Online, right? I was explaining to the I was sharing with the professor earlier before we got started, folks. For those of you who haven't seen, I've been watching uh, the Comey rule on Showtime. A lot of people are also talking about another uh, piece on movie on Netflix, the, uh, the social experiment. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I'm actually scared to watch that. Okay, I'm, I've got to, I'm working my, have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard about it too, oh. yes. Yeah. But yeah. I'm sure uh, yeah. it's going to complement <laughs> your yes. thing. Because yes. some, someone already told me that even if you're not, let's not even get into the extremism yet, yeah. that we all, and especially young people, a lot of us getting like this too, getting older, mm-hmm. cannot put this phone down. Right. Yeah. And in every, it's like we even just having a conversation and then we have to go back to the phone. Yeah. So we're, we're more and more susceptible because of that addiction to, to yes. what's going on online, isn't it? Yeah, you have this addiction, then you combine that with really the generation that are digital natives who are just growing up in that space, right? Where they've always been a part of it. That's how they communicate. And they, I would say the way I describe it is the online ecosystem underpins the whole thing, right? It creates communication channels for them. It creates 
uh, it, it has weaponized youth culture through these kind of memes and iconography and the way in which those evolve um, and mobilize and share extremist and racist and anti-Semitic Islamophobic content, for example. But and it also helps them organize financially, get, you know, sell stuff, but also get donations, raise money to to undertake uh, action. But I think it's important to, you know, to remember that the online has to connect to the offline at some point when they actually go mobilize in marches or down in Charlottesville or, or plan violence. They're still looking at offline places. And so it's not offline places still matter. They meet people in mixed martial arts gyms I talk about, or they, you know, on college campuses when they're hosting so-called provocative speakers, right? So these speakers that kind of um, get hosted by groups, but then are sharing kind of extremist content as well. They, they hang up paper flyers around campuses that share white supremacist propaganda and direct young people to find a URL so then they can go online. So there's a connection between the offline and the online world that I think matters a lot. It's not like this is just kids sitting in a dark corner of their bedroom online all the time and then they fall down a rabbit hole and become extremists. They are making choices. They're still going out in the world, coming back to their computer. They're on their phones. They encounter something out there in the world that they look up. They run a search that takes them to a white supremacist site, right? That's what happened with Dylan Roof, right? He ran a search for something and then that the first hit was a white supremacist site. And he says in his interviews, he's never been the same since that day, right? So those algorithms, how the search engines work, how the recommendation features work, also start to drive people toward content that they then see the world in a different way when they're off their computers. So it's this balance of things. Um, we've heard a lot the term boogaloo. Um, is, is that the uh, uh, the lead actor in what's taking place right now in terms of online recruitment in, in the in the moment of this pandemic. Yeah, I think the not the I wouldn't say they're the most important actor, but they're the perfect example of what I was just talking about about how online youth culture can influence offline violence. It's probably the best example we have, which is um, you know it started as a joke an internet joke among teenagers who were making fun of a movie, um, a 1984 breakdancing movie that was too similar to the original. And so they used it as a term to refer to a coming civil war, a second civil war, referencing that original, you know, that like, it'll be the boogaloo, like something that is the second after a first. Uh, but then it became a series of, through a series of memes online, uh, became renamed the Big Igloo, sounded like Boogaloo and Big Lugao, which encouraged them then to wear these Hawaiian shirts uh, because it also referenced a pig roast, which is you know a slur against law enforcement, so it's a threat as well. And then next thing you know, these guys are showing up, middle-aged guys, not the teenagers who were you know there's some youth there too, but not the people who created the original meme. They inspired hundreds of people to join these groups, and then dozens of them at least to show up and protest heavily armed, you know, at state capitals to protest Second Amendment rights in Richmond and then shelter in place orders um, in the state capitals in April. And then finally at the George Floyd protests to either incite violence or in at least one case to march side by side, you know, against white supremacists. And that's what gets a little confusing too, is are they they don't ideologically, what unites them is a sense of threat and anti-government revolutionary calls, 
Some of them inspire white supremacists, but others argue that they are not, you know, part of the white supremacist fringe at all. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So million dollar question. Mm-hmm. What is, where's Trump in all of this? What role does he play? Is he a rallying point? Um, is he a direct instigator or is he indirect? What, what, yeah. what are your thoughts? Well, I think the first thing that's important to know is that, I mean, I think it's easy people, it's easy from the outside too, I think, to point to Trump as an individual and say, you know, uh, what's happened, right? And it has happened around the mobilization and the and the extreme mainstreaming of extremist ideology, I think, has happened under his watch. And there's no doubt that the kinds of things that he says has legitimized and helped to normalize and even mainstream far-right extremist ideas, I think. But I also think it's important to note that hate groups were rising before this election. He, in many ways, is a symptom rather than the cause of this. And I think it's when we point to only one person or an administration, it's easy to write off everybody else, you know, who contributed to the problem. And so I think we have to hold elected officials accountable for their words and to remember that those words matter. Um, research shows that the words that elected officials use about immigrants, for example, matter for whether people become violent against immigrants on the extremist fringe. So when people, when elected officials use uh, words that celebrate, you know, immigrants as contributing to the vitality of a nation, there's less violence. When they use incendiary language, violence goes up. So we know that those words matter and they should be held accountable for words, Um, but it's not the only problem. And I think um, it's not like solving that is going to solve where we are, right? There's a whole lot of things coinciding. Um, but in terms of mainstreaming normalization, they're definitely, at least in the beginning, I think by extremist groups, this administration was seen as legitimizing a lot of those ideas. Yeah, well, you're right. The extremist groups, you mentioned Dylan Roof, this was in the Obama administration. Right. And, and we saw um, the, the backlash against him and being an African-American president, you know, and as I've talked to people, it, it's interesting. Obama's gone. Mm-hmm. You remember the argument with Obama was he's coming to get our guns. Right. And so Trump clearly isn't, but this movement has not subsided. So you're right. It doesn't really matter. You know, you, even you change out the president, I'm not convinced if the guy, if you're mobilizing around the guy, you think it's coming to get your guns and the guy comes in and says, he's not coming to get your guns. And then the gun sales go up anyway. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it's also really important to note that it's global, right? So we had that terrible, you know, terrorist attack in Oslo, um, right. you know, a terrible terrorist attack, a white supremacist attack in Christchurch, that these guys are circulating the same conspiracy about a global, the idea of a great replacement. They're circulating the idea that there's an orchestrated effort on the part of Jews or Muslims to replace uh, white societies with multicultural ones through immigration and demographic change. And that that's like an existential threat that they have to heroically thwart and fight against. And that's the same conspiracy that motivates, you know, motivates these terrorist fringe groups wherever they are. So it it shows up differently. You know, here you'll hear sometimes in the States people call uh, on the extreme fringe refer to it as white genocide. In Europe, they'll refer to it as something called Eurabia, like Europe is going to turn into, you know, turn Arab. Um, but 
basically they're unified under the same conspirational idea that is motivated by a sense of extreme threat. And they motivate and inspire even each other. They live stream the attacks, some of them in Germany, the last two uh, terrorist attacks in Germany at a synagogue and at a shishi bar, hookah bar, uh, they live streamed or wrote their manifestos in English, right? These were performances for a global community, not just, you know, a national one where you would be writing in German or speaking in German. So I think that's also important. You know, it's not just about one, one politician or one administration, but we, we have to see it as something more systemic and deeper and has to be addressed on a much deeper level. Obviously, um, young men, are more susceptible than young women. But let me not make a generalization. Are, are women being recruited into this? They are. And in fact, women's roles are increasing. So that is important to note that across the board, both on the you know extremist fringe, on the terrorist fringe, we've seen women, you know, brought up for trial now, uh, you know, actually charged with terror offenses. We have women more engaged on that level of things, even in the violence. Um, but they are also involved in the kind of what we call the softer side of recruitment, often through now YouTube videos that are almost like, you know, influencer kinds of, inter, you know, videos that are embedded in like homemaking or, you know, um, homeschooling, homesteading, gardening, like a lot of lifestyle types of things that infuse ideology about um, reframing feminism around choice and around being, you know, a, a good wife and homemaker, but but also celebrating like European heritage in the part of that. So it, it's this mm. ideologies that then draw women in to the movement to through a kind of sneaky backdoor um, that is has been drawing more women into the movement. But that said, I mean, this is really the violence, which is mostly what I'm concerned with, is prevention of violence, is is the domain of men and mostly young men. Um, and so there's a lot to be said about why that's the case. And I think a lot of it has to do with these um, the narratives in that bigger conspiracy theory around defense and threat and calling on you know people to act heroically to protect um, your people or your nation, and why you know why that is that young men are attracted to that to wanting, they describe it as, you know, a sense of purpose or belonging or meaning in their lives and why it is that we as society are somehow not offering that or what is missing that that makes them vulnerable in that way. Again, back to the isolation and lack of belonging that we have right now, creating high risk factors under COVID-19 for them to be drawn into something that offers them what they think actually is a moral act. I mean, that's the part that's really hard to wrap your head around. But when you read these manifestos, when you read you know, what people are saying, what they, the way they live stream, they actually believe they're doing the right thing. Some of them, they're not, you know, they believe this is the, the, the moral engagement to be heroic and save their people or else they're going to end up like, you know, they'll use Native American actually even metaphors and say, we don't want to end up like Native Americans on a reservation, right? Like there's that kind of threat, um, which, you know, it sounds so illogical, but that's how radicalization works. You get further and further down that pathway. And, and, and once you get into that place, you can't, you start interpreting every fact or demographic fact about birth rates or anything through that lens and through a threat lens. And then young men in particular uh, seem drawn to this call to act heroically. That's the same with ISIS. 
these calls to restore the caliphate, to engage heroically, to, you know, resist the West. I mean, it's the same playbook um, that recruiters use and kind of groom these young men into believing that they're doing the heroic thing. The shooter in Kenosha, uh, would he fall into this category? Yeah, I think the shooter in Kenosha is an interesting case because, you know, he responded, also believed he, it's not an organized extremist group, but these were vigilante groups who are, you know, um, citizen, armed citizen groups making a call over social media for people to come and defend a community, to defend law enforcement, um, and to act heroically. So he responded in the same way. Now that call and calls like that, I think it's really important are also, you know, dog whistle racism that is drawing on, you know, by, by referring to protect the city from, I think the language was like evil thugs or something right. like, right. That was right. It. Yeah. right. You have to look at the language and, and, and understand that there's a lot going on there. That is a dog, you know, that is more than just, call to support law enforcement. But, you know, that said, I think, yes, I think it, I think it is the same kind of motivation. It's completely predictable when you have a young man who clearly was drawn to, and a lot of these, a lot of these, you know, terrorist actors have been either drawn to the military, drawn, applied to law enforcement jobs, work in security guards, you know, like there are all kinds of patterns about, um, you know, why someone might be drawn to those kinds of roles, either got rejected, you know, involuntary uh, dismissal from the military, right, or, or out of it, weren't able to make it into. Um, so you see people whose roles were then in security or extreme fitness working out, really getting extraordinarily kind of hyper-masculine um, in, in their musculature, all of that kind of somehow factoring into some of these situations. And I think, yes, Kenosha was in that sense, similar, um, although it was a spontaneous, you know, it was a, it was not the kind of longer radicalization that I'm talking about, but an example of this spontaneous call to action and how that can lead to terrible violence. What can we, um, what can we do about it, yeah. Professor? I mean, having it right under our noses. Yeah, it's a great question. The, the kind of emergency response, I think, is, you know, we worked, I run a research, this research lab that uh, that you mentioned. So the first thing we did under the pandemic is partnered with the Southern Poverty Law Center, and we created a guide for parents and caregivers, which people can get at www.american.edu backslash peril, P-E-R-I-L. It's right there. It's free. It's sort of 18 pages to, you know, to kind of educate parents and caregivers who now are, in many cases, the only adults you know, communicating with young people. Um, what are the warning signs? What are some risk factors? You know, starting to better recognize that and also understand how to build resistance to those narratives. How do you strengthen um, resilience and some of the more positive kind of ways to um, make sure that kids aren't feeling as out of control or as vulnerable to those narratives to act heroically, let's say. So that's one thing is education. We're working now to expand that to guides for mental health counselors, to coaches, to teachers, uh, principals. Um, so in the short term, I think a lot of awareness of adults who can keep an eye on young people and understand when they see those warning flags, what they are. So if you see a, a kid, you know, saying, uh, making a joke about the Holocaust as they put a pizza in the oven, which is a horrific meme that circulates online, 
And as someone I know had heard a kid put, say that as they put it in, mm. in the, um, that you know that they're, they've seen something online, right? They've encountered something online and you, it's an, you know, that, that's what that is. And you know that they're exposed and that it's time for a conversation. And here's some tips on how to have those conversations. If a teacher sees, you know, one of the things that teachers are now receiving training on, unfortunately, is how to recognize signs of child abuse when they're teaching online because reports have gone way down of child abuse under the pandemic because teachers are a major reporter. And so we are trying to figure out, are there ways that we can teach teachers to better recognize signs, you know, of, you know, something they might not notice, an emoji or a turn of phrase or a speech or a joke that somebody makes that if you know what you're tuned into, you would recognize that as, hey, this is somebody who's been exposed. So a lot of what we're working on right now is like emergency stopgap, trying to get people to recognize. But in the long term, I think, you know, as I suggest in the book, um, thinking more broadly about the places and spaces where people encounter these messages from the beginning. So we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, how do terrorist groups, you know, recruit and organize and, and why people cognitively are attracted to extremist groups, like the things I talked about, the emotional vulnerabilities. But we haven't spent enough time asking where they encounter those messages. And if we, if we look at the question of where, you start to see a whole range of spaces and places, like those cooking shows I talked about, or the, um, you know, the mixed martial arts and combat sports where there's festivals or college campuses where they're gonna see that propaganda for the first time on a flyer. You know, and then you start to think, who are who's already in that space that I could work with, and uh, and design some interventions to make them more aware. So that's the approach our lab is taking: is sort of pre-prevention. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is um, this is amazing um, work that that you're doing. Are the are the social media companies themselves? Do they have any? responsibility of course they do but are they taking responsibility at all taking more do you think that they be excuse they me should, so much yeah better? yeah they, this is a great question and uh they they i think they care about it i would say for the most part but should be doing a lot more um you know to be fair to uh the major social media companies one of the bigger one of the huge problems is that the code the game playing and the codes change so rapidly that anything that is an attempt to ban just backfires, right? I think it drives them further along. So, you know, you have Boogaloo, you ban the word Boogaloo, and, and then they just use Big Igloo, and then you ban that word, and then they use, they started using other like codes, um, you know, the story I've often told in Germany where, you know, I spent the first couple decades of my career because it was the best place to study school-based responses to hate um, before it became so much more relevant here. And, and uh, you know, there they were banning, one of the schools banned the number 88 from display because 88 is a code for Heil Hitler. It's the eighth letter of the alphabet, 88, you know, for HH. And so kids started wearing t-shirts that said 100 minus 12 or 87 plus one, right? Like they will creatively, if you ban a kid from doing something, they will immediately find a way around it. It's part of what's fun for them and it makes it a game, game playing. So I think, you know, it's, I think the social media companies are in a tough spot in that sense. What we need a much deeper level understanding at earlier stages, you know, both for, you know, about how the algorithms work and, and how stuff shows up in people's feeds, 
what how that factors into extremist content exposure and radicalization, but also how can we better inform, you know, um, and somebody was just telling me in another meeting, like, you can't, there's hardly anything you can do in life that you don't have to watch like a, you know, or read a manual or a video. But why is it that if you just sign up for, you know, a Twitter account or a Facebook account, you don't have to watch something that tells you like how this works, right? So we should, we need to have some kind of way of educating people about what misinformation looks like, what propaganda looks like, how people try to persuade you, you know, that something is false. And, you know, we have, some of us, you know, as you get older, you start to recognize like the scams that come across your email screen and you know not to click on this, but it's very hard for people to recognize, um, you know, bots, fake accounts, things actually through artificial intelligence trying to polarize us as a community. And um, there's a great quiz out right now from Clemson University that lets you take the, the, the quiz. It's eight different social media accounts and you have to identify which one's a bot. And look, I mean, I am supposed to be kind of an expert on this and I took the quiz and got five out of eight. You know, didn't recognize, and it's some, half of them are real people and half of them are bots. And you read through their social media posts and you're trying to tell, you know, which ones are real and which ones are fake. And it's very difficult to tell. So I think most Americans, most people in the world don't even understand that a lot of what they might see on their feed is not even from a real person. It's from a deliberate attempt to polarize you and to persuade you to believe in something more extreme than you might otherwise. And so, you know, that kind of it's the social media companies could invest, for example, in, re in work that would try to prevent people and inoculate them against that kind of engagement or, or, or susceptibility, help educate them in a better way. But I think the approach of just banning, unfortunately, is just, you know, it just keeps the whole thing going in terms of how young people respond to those, you know, attempts to to, you know, you make drinking illegal, we get binge drinking until people turn 21, right? It's just yeah, yeah. Not really a good way to prevent young people from doing something. No, I, I agree. And it's interesting because you look at Trump, he wants to man TikTok because TikTok organized against him. Right. But he will not condemn the behavior you're talking about. Right. Yeah, the, I mean, and the sources of the misinformation, the potential for foreign interference, you know, what it is that, whose benefit is it to have this kind of um, disruption, right? And and how are we all really pawns in it? And that starts to sound kind of conspirational, right? But it's, I think each one of us has to, that's the polarization side of the work we do, to start to really think about how can we be less susceptible ourselves to these polarizing moments in ways that might, you know, help us move forward um, as a community, as a country in, in better ways. But it's, you know, we're still, we lack really the kind of basic education that help people understand how to detect what they're seeing, why it is that they might encounter scapegoating and blame the virus you know, on the uh, lab, right? That it was created in a lab and someone's presenting you information about the fact that the virus is, you know, manufactured uh, and people start to believe that, right? They start to believe that that a, um, a vaccine is gonna have a tracker in it. I mean, this is all kind of extremist propaganda that circulates that really then has a real impact on whether people will get the vaccine or whether people 
think the virus is a real thing, for example. And so those kinds of, you know, it's not just extremist propaganda about um, white supremacy or domestic extremism or anti, there's also health misinformation and all kinds of things that circulate in this way. I have often uh, felt that, and you're right, you're going, it, it doesn't have to be the hate and the violence, but when you put so much disinformation in the atmosphere, it, it makes it difficult for even the average person to discern, well, maybe, maybe we shouldn't have a vaccine, you know, and, and you make people paranoid about that. And you really don't have a counter argument because there's so much, it's almost like someone decided we're going to keep people as disinformed, as confused as possible. So they literally can't tell yeah. fact from fiction, conspiracy theories. And there may be some bad things going on, you know, but when you, when you over conspiratize everything, then you can't even discern the real conspiracy from yeah. conspiracy. Well, and that's, you know, conspiracies brings up the issue of, you know, QAnon and the rapid growth of, of you know, of, of uh, sweeping conspiracy theories. I mean, one of the things that's happened to me, you know, I spent a lot of time in my last few years in particular responding to questions like yours about how can we help? What, what could parents do? What could teachers do? Just in the last few weeks, I started getting questions about what can we tell teenagers whose parents are radicalizing into QAnon, right? A total heartbreaking question. Um, you know, how can we advise teenagers who, who are facing this? And so I think that that marks a real shift, right? For us, if you see that we used to think of, or I used to think of youth as the most vulnerable, but middle-aged, you know, regular middle-aged folks are are somehow convinced and have become convinced that there's a you know international child trafficking ring i mean it's you know you look at the actual conspiracy theory and you think they can't how could someone believe this but again these pandemic conditions create tremendous uncertainty it's a dangerous world a virus they can't see and then you have elected officials out there who aren't condemning it and that's you know even the refusal to condemn and i think when people are having trouble separating fact from fiction you know, that's where leadership really can be helpful and just stabilizing, um, you know, what is true, what isn't true, what's real, what's not real. And that's where social media is also very challenging because the quality of the bots has improved. Yeah. Videos and what they call deep fakes is improving, which makes it harder and harder for ordinary people to really tell the difference between, you know, fake information and real information. And, and, and now you come out, call out some bots, and then the bots actually respond and say, we're not bots. <laughs> right, exactly, right, and they, and they, they seem, right, I, I mean, like I said, I was fooled, you know, and I think that's a really, I admit that, and I'm public about that, because I think it's a really humbling thing to say, look, even if people who, you know, study this stuff, I took it quickly, but I took it quickly thinking, this is a really interesting tool, let me see how it works, maybe we can, you know, promote this, and then I got five out of eight, and I thought, wow, you know, I mean, it, they're really, they've gotten much better, these accounts. And so that is a major factor, I think, in, in how we think about, I mean, it's not the only thing going on, but it's a part of what's so unsettling right now is people, they might be having a whole engagement with a totally a non-existent person online that's, that's driving them further to extreme opinions. Yeah, yeah. Folks, um, this is very important. We all are 
to some extent aware of it. Uh, but what uh, Dr. Miller Idris has done is really chronicle the impact of this, how widespread this is. This is global. Um, and we've got to address it. We've got to acknowledge it. First of all, cannot be in denial about this. And then we've got to figure out ways to um, uh, uh, address it. Let me just answer so quick before we go. So this is global. Mm -hmm. it, 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 are we picking up any traffic of global calls and conversations about the need for some type of mass reaction in the United States or some type of overthrow and people need to get in the streets? Are we seeing anything like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there are different ways in which uh, what's happening in the U.S. goes global and then what's happening globally affects the U.S. on the domestic extremist side, right? So on the one hand, you have the global white supremacist extremists who do make up the majority of what we call domestic extremists. I mean, you do have, in addition to the white supremacist extremists, you have like seditionists and these militia groups that are anti-government extremists and some single issue uh, extremists like abortion, anti-abortion extremists who attack uh, abortion clinics, that kind of thing. So it's a spectrum, but uh, white supremacist extremists make up the, the majority of them and they are exporting their ideology, you know, globally on the one hand, inspiring, I hate to use that word, but it is what happens. You know, so you had Timothy McVeigh in 1995 kill 168 people in Oklahoma City and that he's considered a saint, basically, globally. Um, they use soccer scores on a T-shirt I've seen. You know, it says 168 colon one um, McVeigh versus U.S. government because the U.S. government executed him. And the idea is, you know, we got 168, you got one. So that, you know, you have German neo-Nazis in that example of it's that T-shirt that I've seen claiming ownership over a horrific terrorist attack in the U.S., so they, they claim ownership over it, they celebrate, they call each other saints and disciples, you know, they have a whole global network of the way that this works. But the anti-government extremism is also in an odd way uh, spreading. And so you have um, in Germany now, you have sovereign citizen movements, you have QAnon, um, you know, spreading at protests, you have, you know, you have similar kinds of phenomena. QAnon I read recently is in 75 countries. You know, it is not just uh, an American uh, incident, but it's, you know, clearly has resonance globally. And, and we see that also with other populist leaders in Brazil and in India, you know, where you have, um, you might have anti-Muslim violence or other kinds of, you know, ethnic, racial group and in-group tensions um, happening that are nationalistic as well. So it's there's a lot going on. It's a big mix of factors, but definitely I think it's really important. That's why I wanted the word global, you know, in the subtitle of this book, because I think it's really important to remember just a U.S.-based phenomenon, even if this is a book primarily about the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Hate in the Homeland, the new global far right by Dr. Cynthia Miller Idris, you all should check this out. Be informed, be aware. Uh, there's a lot to learn here and a lot to address. We all must. Again, we can't address it if we're not aware. Dr. Idris, Miller Idris, thank you so much for joining us on Make It Plain. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. God, you are our refuge. 
Send our ancestors to guard our doors. Cast out this virus from our communities and our bodies. Heal, bless, and protect everyone listening and their loved ones. Thank you for listening to Make It Plain and Get Woke. Remember to listen, like, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. If all minds are clear, it has been Made Plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.